Well, good morning. How are we doing? I love that response. Fantastic. Uh, let's go Mark chapter 15. Mark 15. Um, so my name is Josh Story, and I, uh, I get to be the teaching pastor here at Fort Worth Bible Church. And I am also a big fan of romantic comedies. Anybody else? Yeah? Okay, cool. This is a, we have a core value of vulnerability at this church, so this is a free, safe place to own your love for rom-coms. Now, um, most people give rom-coms some flack because they're predictable, right? Like, any romantic comedy you see, you know exactly how it's going to end as soon as the movie starts, right? We know that two people are going to meet, they're going to fall in love, something's going to happen, they're going to break up. You'll then see this montage of them doing activities separately with like just a longing in their eyes, right? Just questioning all of their life choices. Then along comes a quirky best friend or a wise old sage who says, you should go get her back. And the guy says, you're right. Then there's this grand romantic gesture. She swoons. They live happily ever after, right? That, that's exactly how it, like, that is the storyline to a rom-com. But as predictable as it is, it's actually that predictability that makes us love it. Because there are moments in time when we go to see a movie, and we actually we love knowing how the story ends. There's a comfort and a familiarity when we know exactly how the story is going to end. And it's exactly why it is completely disorienting when someone messes with the plot line of the storyline of a rom-com, right? Case in point, the breakup with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston. Yes, someone just, just said it's terrible. It is terrible. And here's why. When I first saw the trailer, I thought, okay, you know, this is going to be a fun twist on the rom-com plot line, right? What's going to happen is instead of someone meeting, it's going to open on a happy couple, and they're going to break up early instead of at the end. And there's going to be some fun, quirky stuff about how hard breakups are. And then at the end, they're going to realize after some space and some time that they love each other, and then they live happily ever after. I was like, I can get behind that. I go see it, sure enough, opens on a happy couple. They break up early on, fun, quirky stuff about how breakups are hard, and then they never get back together. Like, that's just how it ends, right? Like, the last scene is them seeing each other on the street like five or so years after, and you think, okay, well, this is the moment when they see each other, and they've had time, they've had distance, they've had space, and they see each other, and like, I love you, I love you too, I miss you and then they live happily. No. They see each other on the street and go, hey, see ya. And that's how the movie ends. And I sat there just disoriented. I'm like, like, this this doesn't sit well because I know how the story is supposed to end and this is not it. That's not how the story is supposed to end. Now, maybe you're like, Josh, why on earth are we talking about romantic comedies? Great question. Happy you asked. We are week two in a series that we're calling Road to Resurrection, where, where we are walking along this journey of Jesus as we get to this historical event of the resurrection that we celebrate on Easter. And today, we're going to look at a moment in time, this, this historical moment in time that is absolutely disorienting to every single follower of Jesus. Everyone who has followed Jesus up to this point finds themselves in a moment where they're looking at this scene, and and, and they are convinced, absolutely convinced that they know how the story is supposed to end, and it doesn't end the way they thought they would. And they don't know what to do, and they're confused, and it's dark. And so what I want to do is I want us to look at this scene, 
study it, pull out some, some unbelievable truths of what's happening here, and then figure out what do we do with this, right? Um, because I don't know uh, how long you've been following Christ, but if you follow Christ for pretty much any period of time, you know that there are moments in time when, when it can be absolutely disorienting. And so the question is, what do we do with this? And so that's where we're going to be. Let's pick up in, uh, actually, let me do just a little bit of context setting. Um, last week, if you were here, Wayne brilliantly walked us through the triumphal entry, which is this unbelievable scene where Jesus shows up on the road to Jerusalem. And during this feast, there's about two and a half million people that show up to celebrate the feast of Passover. And they believe that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. He is this king that is coming to, to set Rome for, or, or to set Israel free from the power and the tyranny of Rome. And he's going to have a revolution. And so people lie in the streets and they're waving branches and they're singing and they're weeping and there is hope and there's laughter and there's joy because there are people who are like, I never thought in my lifetime I would ever get to see the Messiah show up in person. This is amazing. And it is just, I mean, it is a rager. I mean, it's just a parade unlike anything you have ever seen in your life. And it's this day of hope as the Messiah enters Jerusalem and he is about to just rise up, create a revolution, and set Israel free from the tyranny and the oppression of Rome. But over the next couple days, things take a turn. First off, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples, a guy named Judas, um, sells him out, betrays him, and, and, and sets him up, and Jesus gets arrested. He then goes through a, a series of very unfair trials. Um, despite the fact that these trials are rigged, uh, he comes out innocent. The final judge is like, I got nothing. <laughs> like, I mean, this dude is, is as innocent as innocent can be. What do you want me to do about this? And the Pharisees and the religious leaders and political leaders of the day, they stir up the crowd, many of whom were just a few days before in the streets just celebrating praising the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, now they're stirring up this crowd calling for Jesus to be crucified. And that's where we pick it up in verse 12. It says, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? <laughs> what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, who was a, a murderer. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. And they, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means uh, place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take, take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they cru crucified him. 
And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with a sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, in this way he breathed his last, he said, this it says, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary, and, or Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many others who came up with him to Jerusalem. Okay, so there, there's a lot in this text. And I wanted to try to unpack a few things that help us really wrap our minds around why this was such a disorienting moment in time. Um, the first thing is there's a, a really quick phrase, really quick sentence here that would be really easy for us to pass over. Um, and it says that, uh, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Um, the first step in a crucifixion, and, but let me just warn you, um, what I'm about to describe is pretty gruesome. And I don't say it just to be shock and awe. I say it because this is historical, and I, I want us to get an accurate picture of what exactly Christ suffered for us. Um, the first step is called the scourging. And the scourging is when you take a long whip with leather braids, and within those leather braids are woven pieces of bone and metal. And you take that whip, and you beat the prisoner 39 times. Every time that whip grabbing pieces of your flesh and ripping it off your body. 39 times. Now, most people didn't survive the scourging, as you can imagine. It's traumatic. Jesus did. And so once you survive the scourging, they take the horizontal beam of the cross and they strap it to your back or lack thereof. And they force you to carry it up a hill. Jesus was so weak that they had to bring this guy from the crowd to, to carry it up. And so Jesus stumbles up there, and once they, um, they bring you up, they, they lay that horizontal beam on the cross, and they stretch out your arms, and they drive a nail that's about five to seven inches long through the middle of your wrist, crushing your nerves. So imagine that um, little nerve when you hit your funny bone, that nerve getting crushed with a nail. Then they move down to your feet. They drive those nails through your feet, and then they hang you up on the cross. And when you hang there, you hang in the exhale position. So in order to breathe in, you have to lift yourself up on 
the nail until your tarsal bones lock and then you slump back, back down. And that's how you breathe. Push yourself up, slump back down, all the while the coarse wood of the cross rubbing up against your exposed back. And the process of, of crucifixion is just that. You, they just sit and they wait to watch you suffocate. It is an absolutely barbaric way to go. And all the followers of Jesus are watching this. And eventually Jesus breathes his last breath and they're looking up and they're thinking about the week before and they're thinking about the parade and the singing and the laughter and the dancing and the hope that they had in this man. And they look at him and they say, this isn't how it's supposed to end. This isn't how the story was supposed to end. It's supposed to overthrow Rome. It's supposed to set us free. And now he's dead. So they did what anyone would do. They, they take him down off the cross, they stick him in the tomb, and they go home. It's a very disorienting moment for everyone that has been following Jesus. But it shouldn't have been. This shouldn't have been a disorienting moment because all day, God was screaming at the people to let them know you're tracking with the wrong story. I'm doing something different. This is a completely different story going down than the one that you think. And so God is screaming at them, just kind of laying these breadcrumbs. And so, so I want to, to show you what they should have picked up on. Because there's two very kind of in-your-face things that are happening here that, that I don't want you to miss. The first is this. There, there's a moment when Jesus on the cross, screams out, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've heard preachers for years talk, talk about this is the moment when God turned his back on Jesus. This is the moment when God turned his face away. God couldn't be in the midst of it. God couldn't watch this. God, God completely abandoned Jesus on the cross. But that is not what's happening here. In fact, it's the opposite. Um, when, when we read Psalms, we have Psalms that are numbered, right? So we say Psalm 23 or Psalm 119. Um, back in the day, the book of Psalms didn't have numbers. They were uh, known as the first, first phrase of the Psalm. So like the title of a Psalm is the first phrase. Psalm 22, the first line of that Psalm is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so what Jesus is doing is he's not crying out, God, where are you? God, I'm alone up here. No, no. He's telling everyone who's watching, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. What does Psalm 22 say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that say? And so let, let me read to you a little passage here. It starts off, it says this. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And verse 3 is huge. It says, yet, yet you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trust, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. So, so let's start right there for just, just a second. And this psalm was written a thousand years before the crucifixion. 
And one of the things that I love about this psalm is that when David writes this psalm, there is this, there's this contrast that he wants people to see, that there are moments in time when we cry out and say, God, I, I don't see you, I don't feel you, God, I don't know what you're doing. But he always finishes with, although I don't know where you are, I do know who you are. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. You have delivered our forefathers. God, you have proven to be faithful over and over and over and over. So while I don't know where you are, I do know who you are, and I'm going to trust in that. So, so make no mistake that that's one of the things that Jesus is trying to call them. To say, hey, like you're looking around, and you don't understand what's going on. You don't know where God is in this. But know who he is. That, that our God delivers. That's who our God is. But then he goes on to say, uh, to say this. Let's get down to verse 14. He says, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my chest. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers do, evil encircles me. Catch this. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all of my bones. They stare and they gloat. They mock me. They divide my garments among them. And from my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And you offspring, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. And this is huge. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So make no mistake, when Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not the moment when God turns his back on Jesus. He's telling everyone watching, he says, if you think I am alone in this, if you think God is nowhere to be found in the midst of the brutality of what you're experiencing, Remember the words of this psalm. Look around. My clothes over there. The ones that just got divided because someone cast lots for them. These, these nails in my hands, these nails in my, in my feet. Like, like, the psalm, like God called his shot a thousand years ago. And what this psalm tells us is in the midst of looking around and looking, look, looking like God is nowhere to be found, make no mistake, God is here, God is present, God is doing something. He has not hidden his face from us. He has not despised our affliction. So the first thing that, that we see that is designed to show the people just this giant glaring picture of what God is doing, that, that they're missing the story is Jesus says, no, God is in the midst of this. God is here in this moment. And so the question is, all right, well, what is he doing then? What's he doing? If God is here, if God is present, if God has not hidden his face, then what is he doing? <clears throat> that answer comes from the darkness. Um, if you remember in the text, uh, it says that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, 
there was a darkness over the land. Now, we don't measure time like that anymore, so it's important for us to understand what this means. The sixth hour was noon. The ninth hour was three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, if the sun went down right now, or like, a, like you're at lunch, you're at press, and all of a sudden it goes pitch black outside, that's gonna freak you out, right? Because the sun doesn't go down at noon. It doesn't get dark for three hours in the middle of the day, and if it does, like something's a brew, right? Yeah, there is this darkness that falls for three hours in the middle of the day, which is designed to show every single person what exactly God is doing. Because the Old Testament prophets, when they talked about the moment when God would judge the sins of the world, darkness is how they described it. Let me give you a couple examples. Amos 5, 18 through 20 says this. It says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Zephaniah 1.15 says, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And if you really want to see how cool the Bible is, Amos 8, verses 9 through 10. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts, like the Passover, into mourning and all of your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head and I will make it like the morning for an only son. At the end of it, like a bitter day. This was written hundreds of years before this historical moment happened. And so all throughout this day, God is, God is screaming at his people. He's like, I've not abandoned you. I've not left you on your own. This is not a day for being disoriented or confused. This is like, like you're reading the wrong story. Because what I'm doing is I'm saving the world. I'm freeing, not from the power and the tyranny of Rome. I'm freeing you from the power and tyranny of sin and death and shame. That's what's happening. And what's even cooler is it says that at the ninth hour, Jesus breathed his last and the lights came back on. Now, why that's important is because the historian Josephus tells us that the ninth hour was the time, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, on the dot. That was when the Jews every day would go to the temple to make their sacrifices. 3 p.m. was the hour of sacrifice. And in a moment, God says, you're good. You don't have to make sacrifices anymore because the ultimate sacrifice just happened. So this whole picture is designed to show that God is at work, God is doing something, yet they missed it. They sat and they weeped and they grieved and they looked at a, their hope that was on the cross, put them in the tomb and they went home. And so the question is, what do we do with this? Um, I think oftentimes, the application uh, that we give is to go and do something, right? Um, 
I think sometimes the application is to marvel at something. I think this is one of those moments. The application here is to marvel at who our God is. The thousands of years before this, God called his shot. And that God was faithful to the T. And that when we read this, when we look at the picture of Jesus on the cross, what happens in our hearts is we marvel at a God who is gracious, a God who is kind, a God who went to great lengths to save us from ourselves, but a God who knows exactly what he's doing. I identify a lot with the people in this story who are just standing there watching it, just confused. And like, God, what are you doing? Because oftentimes I, I think I know how the story ends. At least I, I want to believe I know how the story ends, yet God so often says, that's cute. You're a decent storyteller, but I'm a much better one. And I'm going to give you what you need. And so this is a moment where I just want us to just, as a church, just stop and just marvel and just dwell on the goodness of our God, the richness of this text as we sit and just think, man, God, God knows exactly what he's doing. And when it feels like he's not there, when it feels like, like we are alone in the darkness, God is like, I'm right here. You might not see what I'm doing, but I'm doing something. It is for your good, period. And the best part, because the story's not quite yet over. Spoiler alert, there's more, all right? <laughs> Let me pray. God, you are so gracious to us. The fact that from the very first moment in time that we sinned, the very first time that we went our own way, the very first time that we decided that we knew better than you, Instead of leaving us on our own, God, you declared in the very beginning, you said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to do something about this. And that this moment, this brutal, barbaric moment where Jesus lost his life should be something that we grieve because our sin hung him on that cross. But because of your grace, we can celebrate the fact that we are now set free that my sin no longer defines me, that our sin no longer defines us, that our, our shame, the things that keep us up at night, the things that, that haunt us, they don't have to. Because we are not defined by that. We are defined by the fact that you call us sons and daughters, that you have redeemed us. God, may this truth be a truth that we celebrate, but it may also be a truth that sobers us. as we marvel at your goodness, God. We love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.